Hey everyone, this is Jason Shappert, and you're listening to the Private Pilot Podcast by M0A.com, where a good pilot is always learning. You may not want to talk about it, private pilots, but winter's almost here. How can we be safer, smarter pilots, even in the winter? Hey everyone, Jason Shaffer here of M0A.com, and you are listening to The Private Pilot Podcast, brought to you by our number one rated online ground school. Just visit M0A.com, or if you want to take a two-week free, no-strings-attached trial of the course, M0A, M-Z-E-R-O-A, M0A trial dot com to check that out learn a little bit more see how we have injected the science of learning and just amazingness is that is that a right way to call it amazing things into our private instrument commercial and foi courses and our entire proprietary just to us learning management system i geek out on the few things i like i love flying i love business i love the science of learning M0A allows me to do all three of those things. This is my sport. People go, do you play sports? This is my sport. One day I'll play sports maybe, but business and flying and learning, that is my sport. I promise I have other hobbies on, on occasion sometimes. Hey, we're talking today about winter flying. I know it is October. Well, if you're listening to this as a recording, it's October of 2021 as this is coming out. Happy October to everybody. And some of you, not us here in Florida, we haven't thought about winter just yet. We don't start thinking about winter until around Thanksgiving time. So we have a little bit. But some of you right now are starting to think about, you're starting to see some hints of winter perhaps. I was talking to some of our team members who live up north and they're starting to like winterize their boats and close up their pools and, and everything is happening here. So winter is coming, my friends, and are we prepared for it as aviators? That's where I want us to focus here today is what does it mean to be a winter aviator? Now, before you say, wait a second, Jason, you live in Florida. What do you know about winter flying? Well, despite living in Florida, and I do love living in Florida, you may not know this, I spent a, at a short uh, portion of my career at Bridgewater State College. I believe it's now Bridgewater University, if there's any, uh, any Bridgewater alumni out there. I think it's Bridgewater University now. Um, and I was up there during one of the worst winters they ever had. And I was, gosh, I was working on a few certificates and ratings, one in particular. I remember I was working on my commercial multi-add-on. And I remember in the depths of January, getting down on your hands and knees to inspect the landing gear on a frozen, icy, snowy ramp. There's nothing glamorous about it. And that's actually how we'll segue into this. Let's start at the very beginning as we prepare for winter flying. And yes, we're checking weather, and we'll get to weather in a second. But I wanna talk first and foremost about the actual pre-flight. You see, the pre-flight you do in the summer is much faster than the pre-flight you're gonna end up doing in the wintertime. What do I mean by that? And I can take this a step further. It's similar to your pre-flight at night as well, I wanna add. I like to slow down at night and when it's cold. 
That's not saying I rush in the summertime. I'm just saying I purposefully slow down at, at night and when it's cold, especially when it's cold, because I found myself when I was a student at Bridgewater State College and I was flying there out of the New Bedford Airport, little Cessna 152s and the Piper Seminole for my multi. And I just remember it being so cold and just wanting to rush to the pre-flight so I could just run back inside, warm up, and then come right back out to go ahead, hop in the airplane, and please let the cabin heat be good in this airplane because if you've flown old airplanes, cabin heat can be hit or miss sometimes. And you always dressed warm just in case you got one of those airplanes that the cabin heat didn't work as well as you would have liked it to. And in fact, even on the pre-flight, we had a thing called the Red Dragon. Can't make this up. Some of you, if you're in Florida, you're laughing right now or you think I'm crazy. Some of you are laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. You may call it something different. I want to say Red Dragon was the actual brand name though. It was an engine preheater. Some of you have a Tannis heater that you plug in and you know that's super fancy and great. But these little 152s, we had no Tannis heaters. There was no outlet to plug anything in to heat up the engine block. We had a thing called the Red Dragon and it was this big, you know, gas tank similar to how you like your um your your natural gas tanks for like a propane grill and you would roll that out on a little wagon and you'd have to get this thing to fire up and if you've ever struggled to fire up like an old gas grill this is really no different you're out there and you're starting it and you're trying to light it and you're playing with gas and you're near airplanes and you're just trying to get this thing to light and it has this big tube it looks almost like um um you know scat tubing in a way for the engine and you go ahead and you put that through the cowling and you heat that up and then you run back inside and you do your weight and balance and check the ATIS and everything else. But that's how our flight started in Massachusetts. You would arrive at the airport, if your plane was there, you'd put it on the Red Dragon, especially if you're the first flight of the day. Normally, if you're the second or third flight, you don't need to as much, depending on how cold it was. But I'm an early riser. So I'd be the first one there so often at seven in the morning. It's, it's frigid. No one can prepare you from living in Florida your entire life to then living in Massachusetts. You, don't, you can't possibly purchase enough clothing to keep yourself warm. You run out there, you fire up the Red Dragon, you run back into the FBO, you chat with your instructor, do your pre-flight briefing, do the weight and balance, check the ATIS, you do everything. You go out, Red Dragon's still going, you pre-flight the airplane, and it's so easy to want to pre-flight quickly because all I want to do is hop in and pull that cabin heat, start that engine up. That's all I wanted to do. And I found my instructor, very, very wise, slowing me down and saying, Jason, this is when people make mistakes when they're rushing, when they just want to get into the airplane, when they're cold, when they really don't want to take their gloves off to check that connecting rod on the ailerons because Oh, it's just so cold and to touch cold metal, I really don't, right? Can you see the problems here? You have to slow down. You have to do the pre-flight as you're supposed to do it. And then if you seriously need to warm up, right? We have to go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And at the very bottom, our, our base needs are what, right? I, I, need, I need warmth. I, I need to, to feel good. I need food. I need nourishment. And I need to be warm and have, have comfort with that. Run back into the FBO and thaw out, which is what I did, warm up, and then go back out. One last little dummy check and fire up that airplane. 
you have to slow operations down in winter flying even though you so greatly desire to speed them up. Now, if we've accomplished the pre-flight, I'm assuming we're going flying and I'm assuming we've done our due diligence before even getting out to the airport. You see, in winter flying, you should have what I call no-go temperatures. There's just, and maybe your insurance carrier has some, Certainly your flight school, if it's in a winter location, probably has some, or the FBO you rent from, or the club you're a member of, probably has some no-go temperatures that, hey, when it's below this, or when it's below, we just don't go flying. It's too hard on the airplane, it's too dangerous, the freezing level's too close, everything else, we just don't go. And speaking of freezing levels, do you know where the freezing levels are? And do you know how to check for that? Do you know where to even check for freezing levels? You know, it's interesting. We just, um, we sent our book off uh, Aviation Mastery, the book, aviationmastery.com. If you haven't grabbed your copy already, just sent it off to publishing after a few delays. Some on, uh, some on my part, others, the publisher is, is severely, severely delayed on, on backlogs and everything else right now. Uh, but that should be coming out here uh, soon. So very excited about that. But I was talking about in the book, and I don't want to spoil it too much, about this idea of known icing, which is a definition you hear. And then you also hear known icing conditions. You see, known icing, I won't dive into it too deep. I'll let you read the book to learn more about it. We cover an accident that, that involves icing. Known icing is exactly that. Somebody flew through there. They reported it, it's a pie rep, there is ice. That's known ice. But then there's another definition called known icing conditions. And all the FAA, and again, the FAA can be very, very vague with things, they're very vague with this. It's simply just conditions, I'm gonna put it in plain English, conditions that are conducive for the formation of ice conditions that are conducive for the formation of ice. Ice may be there, ice may not be there, but the conditions are conducive for its formation. Two very different definitions, right? In fact, many of your aircraft are placarded what? Flight into known ice? No. Flight into known icing conditions? Prohibited. If the conditions are there, there may not be a forecast yet that says, yes, Jason, there's rime ice at this altitude. If the conditions, if the ingredients are all there, that's a known icing condition. Where's the freezing level, by the way? Or is there an inversion? Let me ask a more powerful question that you should be asking yourself because it's so easy to focus on where is the freezing level? Oh, it's at 2,000 feet today. So I'll just stay below that. Well, it's not that simple. Number one, there could be inversions out there causing issues. Number two, in order for ice to form, there needs to be visible moisture. You can certainly fly above a freezing level if there's not visible moisture. If it is a clear, unlimited, beautiful day, not a cloud in the sky, you can certainly fly above freezing level. In fact, I would be willing to bet, depending on where you are on your private pilot training, you probably have. 
thinking of the standard adiabatic lapse rate when two degrees Celsius per thousand feet is our, is our standard adiabatic lapse rate for how, how the temperature changes, assume there's no inversions, you could climb up to eight, 9,000 feet and you may be at freezing or pretty close to freezing, but you weren't in any clouds, but it was freezing outside. You're not gonna pick up ice just because you're below the freezing level. Nor are you gonna pick up ice, I'm sorry, don't, how can I say this? I just shared that you may be flying beyond the freezing level and not pick up ice because there's not visible moisture. I'm trying to also say in an articulate manner, the opposite of that is also true, that you could be flying in warmer than the freezing level, invisible moisture, and pick up ice. The freezing level is not always a, hey Jason, 4,000 feet and above, man, that's where the ice is at, because that's where the freezing level is at. No, you could have super cooled water droplets falling through the freezing level and then impacting your aircraft, and you may be in 38 degrees Fahrenheit. You could be in warmer air and pick up ice if the conditions exist. In fact, can someone put it in the comments? The numbers escape me and this just came to me. I didn't have time to research it. There's an actual, there's actual data on carb ice and carb ice is a little bit different because it creates a venturi to the carburetor, creates some low pressure and does drop the temperature. But there is scientific data that suggests that carb ice can even be encountered up to as warm as, please correct me in the comments. I read every comment. I want to say it's like 72 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm almost positive it's in the 70s. In fact, I even think it's a private pilot written test question. Maybe it's an instrument pilot question. I have to look through our database and do a search and I don't have anything in front of me now other than my notes. And that wasn't on my notes, it just kind of came to me. Carb ice, different animal. And gosh, perhaps we should spend some time there. I didn't add that to my notes. I wanna say it's as warm as 72 degrees, but will someone post, if you're watching this on YouTube or Facebook in the comments, if you're on iTunes or Audible listening to this, go find this on YouTube and Facebook and see if somebody left a comment. If not, would you be the one to do it? I'm almost positive. I'll look it up and see here. Maybe the team uh, coach and Tom, maybe you can look it up there. Uh, Tom edits the audio of this, Coach Ray edits the video um, of this. Maybe they can add it to their descriptions as well. Jason said this and it, what he meant was this. They're just getting notes as we go along. I'm sure they're both smiling now going, that Jason always just makes stuff up as he goes along. It's true sometimes, it's true. I'm always ready for a good diversion. Um, bad pun intended. Where's the freezing level? But the more powerful question I was alluding to before I took that left turn of a tangent, the more powerful question, it's powerful to know and ask yourself, where is the freezing level? And know that it's a range and mother nature changes and you, you absolutely can pick up ice in, in much warmer temperatures than freezing. The, the more powerful question to ask yourself is, where is warmer air? To put it more in plain English, where is the way out? I picked up ice twice in my aviation career both an aircraft not equipped for ice, both an aircraft that say flight in a known icing conditions prohibited. And let me tell you something, I would not have been flying there because that would have been illegal. I would not have been flying there if there were icing conditions forecast at that time. There was none of it. In fact, the icing was literally, in one case I remember particularly, you can ask Matt to confirm when we were flying up to Ohio. I wanna say the icing was forecast light about 8,000 feet above us. I mean, way above us. 
and we were picking up a little more than light ice. I can only imagine what was really happening there at 8,000 feet above us. That's how mother nature works though, sometimes. I didn't choose to pick up ice, but Matt and I knew that that was a possibility based on the geography of where we were flying. And we knew to ask ourselves the question of where is warmer air? In both our cases, it was lower and we were thankful we had lower to go. And what you also find is sometimes Sometimes you can't always find warmer air. In one case, we were able to find warmer air and just eliminate the ice. In the Ohio case, where the ice was supposed to be eight, maybe 9,000 feet above us, we were able to descend, which stopped the slow accumulation, but it did not eliminate the ice that was on the wing. It was there. And in fact, we couldn't go much lower because much lower would have dropped us from IFR and everything else. And literally, we landed. with the, it, it stayed with us the entire time. We landed with it. We got to warmish air, but not enough to melt it. But we got into a condi condition that at least stopped the accumulation of it. You need to know where warmer air is, if it's even accessible. What if we're at 3,000 feet, the lowest, at least in Florida, the lowest IFR altitude they're going to take you, right? It's, it's not just Florida, it's anywhere. What if we're at 3,000 feet and we're picking up ice and lower is not an option because, well, they're going to drop us. Well, I can declare an emergency and drop on down and try to keep radio reception. What if I'm in an area where there's terrain and lower is truly not an option and I'm picking up ice? What do I do in that case? You've got to get the airplane out of icing conditions and to warmer air. Never forget this. Sometimes, not all the time, don't, don't hear me as saying all the time, sometimes warmer air can be found above you. Sometimes. Sometimes you could just be flying through an inversion and warmer air can be above you. Not all the times. Now, don't also deceive yourself and fool yourself and think I'm going to climb above the ice. In a climb configuration, in a climb pitch attitude, you're actually more likely to even pick up ice. I'm flying slower. I'm putting more, more airfoil into the ice, giving it more surfaces to accumulate on. That's not always the best situation. This is why when you battle ice, you must know your enemy and know their weaknesses and their weaknesses, warmer air. Where's the warmer air? Usually it's below you. But sometimes, sometimes you can get lucky enough to have it above you as well. You need to know and understand where that warmer air is. You see, winter flying is nothing to mess around with. In fact, I do this study every year and the data is just so repeatable. There is less flying in the winter and rightfully so, there's less flying days and there's a lot of people who just say, you know, I'm not comfortable flying in the winter time. There are less hours flown general aviation in the winter, yet there are more fatalities. And I don't mean more just by percentage because that is the case. I mean more than the summer months, less hours flown, more fatalities. Year after year after year, I repeat this data. Now add a COVID year on top of it, right? Where, where everyone's been stuck at home, not flying as much as they wish they were. 
the Department of Transportation for, or, or maybe it was Highway Patrol, I can't remember who put it out, has already put out a study with just us getting back to travel and back on the road. There have been more accidents than year over year to non-COVID years, 2019, 2018, as if people haven't driven in a long time and they're not as experienced operating on the highways. If it correlates to cars, it correlates to airplanes as well. And that data is, is soon to come, I am sure. And Missouri Nation, my goal is always to keep these podcasts short, sweet, and to the point. Please subscribe on iTunes, subscribe and follow on Audible, uh, YouTube as well. We love your subscriptions there, your comments, Facebook, follow us, like us. Thank you so much. You all are such a blessing to our mission here at M0A.com. If there's anything, anything at all myself or this amazing team can do here at M0A to serve you better, please, please, please don't hesitate to reach out. Have a blessed, amazing, outstanding rest of your day. And most importantly, remember that a good pilot is always learning. Have a great day, everybody. I'll see you.